This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening into the podcast today. I am a litigation consultant, a passionate advocate for the wrongfully accused, and today we're going to be taking a deep dive into the Curtis Reeves case. Curtis Reeves was the popcorn movie theater shooter. This is an event that took place back in 2014. Uh, Curtis Reeves went to a movie with his wife. He was going to meet his son there. He got into a verbal verbal altercation with a man named Chad Olson. That altercation ended with a single gunshot from Curtis Reeves that took the life of Chad Olson. Eight years later, the case finally went to trial. Curtis Reeves was acquitted, and it's a fascinating case with a lot of lessons for concealed carriers. Don West, National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe, is going to join us today, as will Steve Moses, respected firearms instructor, for his tactical insights. We're going to talk a little bit today in our part one of this two-part podcast about the elements of self-defense and what separates it from murder. And the question for the jurors was, Curtis Reeves' uh, shot, was it out of spite or was it in self-defense with reasonable fear that he was about to be severely harmed or killed? Uh, In part of that conversation, we're going to discuss the difference between the types of charges that a self-defense shooter could face in a homicide situation, from manslaughter to first and second degree murder. We're going to talk about disparity of force Big issue in this case, Curtis Reeves was in his 70s, relatively frail and not in perfect health. Chad Olson's in his 40s and by all counts, uh, uh, very fit and capable physically. And how did that disparity between their physical capabilities play into the trial? And we'll wrap up our conversation today talking a little bit about the subjective and objective way that a jury is allowed to look at the reasonableness of a shooter's actions in a self-defense case. So we'll get right into it. This is my conversation with Don West and Steve Moses about the Curtis Reeves trial. So listen, guys, we're going to talk about the Curtis Reeves case. People might know this as the movie theater popcorn shooting. Is that how you heard about it? Yeah, that was the headline that I heard and uh, when it first happened because actual, real, literal popcorn was involved in the sequence of events, as was the setting in a movie theater where you associate, of course, movies and popcorn and very rarely would you think there would be a lethal self-defense shooting and you know don you and i have been talking together about these cases with ccw safe for about six years now and recording these podcasts for almost as long and this is a case that we were looking at before we started dissecting a whole bunch of other cases that have been opened and closed within that time this event happened on january 13th of 2014 and it just now got to trial in february 
of 2002. That's an extraordinary long time for uh, for a murder case. He was charged with second degree murder for the shooting of Chad Olson. Uh, that's a long that's time. That's right. From uh, 2014 to 2022, uh, eight years, which is not to say that nothing happened between 2014 and 2022. There are lots of things happening within the court system, but it was not finally and fully resolved until the jury uh, returned its verdict last month. Sure. So let's let's go over the, the key facts that we know. Curtis Reeves. He was 71 years old at the time. He's a retired uh, law enforcement officer. See why he had served on a, a SWAT team at, at one time, or at least was a captain. Uh, yes. From what I understand, he was at one time the captain of a SWAT team. So he's an experienced guy. He understands firearms, we're going to guess. He's had some training in that through his profession. And and he's a he's a law-abiding guy. He's a, he's a law enforcement officer. He and his wife, Vivian, went to go meet their... Uh, son to see a showing of Lone Survivor at the Cobb Theater in Wesley Chapel, which is a town near Tampa, Florida. And in the lead up to the film, you know, the, the, the previews are about to start and they put on that message asking you to put your cell phones away. Well, the guy in front of Curtis's seat was named Chad Olson, a 43-year-old guy. Our friend Andrew Branca made a point in his trial coverage to assert over and over again that he is about over six feet tall, weighed 220 pounds, compared to the uh, arthritic and elderly 71-year-old Curtis Reeves. And elderly is a, a state of mind and and uh, lifestyle, not not an age, actually. But the uh, by comparison, uh, old Curtis Reeves... Uh, there's a physical disparity between the two. And and so Curtis leans over right after the message to put your cell phones away to uh, the guy who is scrolling on his phone, allegedly texting the babysitter, asked him if he could put it away. He said some things back that weren't entirely polite. Um, his wife, uh, Nicole Olson, said, hey, just the previews, as in it's not as bad as if the movie were running. So... Reeves, not satisfied, decides to get up and go tell the theater manager that someone's using a cell phone during the movie. Uh, his wife testified. She says, why don't we just move seats? But they had already told their son where they're sitting. He was going to come join them in a few minutes. So they decide to stay where they are. By all accounts, uh, Reeves goes out in a rather like annoyed but not angry, impassioned way. M- mentions that the guy in front of him is on his cell phone. He comes back in, sits down. The cell phone's away now. And apparently Reeves leans over the chair, says, I wouldn't have told the management now that I see your cell phone's away. And Reeves testified then that uh, Olsen gets up, starts yelling the F word a lot, getting very aggressive. He's leaning over the seat. Uh, Curtis Reeves, he's in his seat. Uh, it's got some popcorn on his lap. Uh, it seems I'm pretty convinced Chet Olson was was leaning over and his hands were in front of him. He's reaching out towards Curtis Reeves. There's a suggestion that his cell phone was thrown and maybe hit Reeves in the head. That's a fact that's in dispute. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and then uh, at this point, Reeves feels 
completely threatened by this explosive and violent, if not physically yet violent, but very physical, emotive, visceral response from uh, from Olsen about this phone discrepancy. Uh, and then the popcorn's thrown somewhere in that sequence. Reeves unholsters his pistol, fires one shot. The shot goes through. I think we're to understand that Olsen's wife had reached her hand around and had it on on Chad Olsen's chest. The suggestion is that she was trying to restrain him a little bit. The bullet goes through her hand, strikes Olsen in the chest. It's fatal. Uh, there's a little bit of an aftermath, but in essence, he, he fired one time. Uh, Olsen's son, who had just shown up, who was also in law enforcement, attempted to render aid. The police come. Uh, Reeves gives a statement, and now in the news we've got a man who shot a fellow moviegoer over having popcorn thrown in his face. That's the pop culture imagination of this case. Um, we know it's a bit more complicated than that. And then that sets into the course eight years of a controversial self-defense shooting. Is there anything important, Steve, from your perspective that I've left out? that will help us guide our conversation. Uh, no, I think that pretty much captures the essence of everything that took place. Done anything else that, that is noteworthy? And while you think about that, I think it's interesting to let our listeners know that you and I, from a litigation point of view, having uh, been on the defense side of this, me as a consultant, you as a veteran criminal defense attorney, we know that, that there are facts and there are disputed facts and that the court's going to decide which of those facts get to be presented to a jury. And then at the end of the case, the judge is going to specifically inform the jurors that they're allowed to believe or disbelieve any of those facts. They're allowed to decide which testimony they thought was credible and which testimony they discount as not credible, and then they're allowed to assign whatever weight they think is appropriate to any of the things that they believe or don't believe. And I say that in the context of um, nobody can know this case better than the parties that were involved, the lawyers who had every bit of evidence. Um, some of that evidence wasn't allowed to be shown to the jurors, and in the end the jurors saw what they're allowed to see and made their choice and it's hard to ever second guess a jury on any of their decisions because they're the only ones that saw only the things that were allowed to be shown and, and to make their decision based on that. So, so when I asked you if there are any things that the jury saw that will be significant to our conversation today is with the understanding that nobody can know everything and a lot of these things are in dispute and subjective. Yeah, and you know, the judge in the context that you're describing, Sean, is sort of the gatekeeper of information. The rule is all relevant evidence, probative element or evidence should be admitted and properly considered by the jury. If it's not relevant or otherwise material to the issues that the jurors have to decide, it shouldn't come in because it's not useful for anything in particular. And then there's some evidence that may arguably be relevant and probative, but the prejudice of that particular information 
outweighs the probative value. So in that sense, the judge is the gatekeeper and takes a look at how important this evidence might be on the issues, whether or not it's so inflammatory or prejudicial that the risk of prejudicing the jury uh, is uh, too great for this evidence of perhaps marginal relevance or probative value to be admitted. So in that sense, the judge would exclude evidence that you might make an argument is relevant, but the judge concludes, no, it's too prejudicial, so it stays out. However, mm -hmm. the rule is all relevant evidence is admitted and the jury gets to decide whether or not uh, the role that it plays in the scheme of things. Of course, in different kinds of cases, there may be evidence that was seized or obtained illegally, meaning in violation of some constitutional protection, at which point a motion to suppress prior, prior to the trial would be filed by the lawyers. The judge would rule and then decide whether the evidence was obtained lawfully. If the court concludes it was not obtained lawfully, then it would be excluded. So that might be evidence that would exist, but the court has concluded from a uh, constitutional standpoint, from an evidentiary standpoint, it can't be considered by the jury. So there's a lot of sorting that goes up uh, out uh, through motions to suppress, ultimately motions in limine, and finally at the end of that pretrial process, the body of evidence that can be admitted to the jury is there. It can take many forms. It can take the form of witness testimony. It can take the form of physical exhibits sometimes opinion testimony from qualified experts and such. So as the court is the gatekeeper, the role is ultimately to provide a fair and proper setting for justice to take place. Yeah, and, and, and in that context, we're going to discuss today a smaller subsection of that evidence that was presented to the jury that we think is relevant to how that jury rendered their non-guilty verdict in this case so um before well, we get and let's do that though again since we're talking about court procedure the, the context of this is the typical self-defense trial process is that someone is charged by the prosecutor by indictment or by information with a crime of violence in this instance, I think Curtis Reeves was charged with second degree murder, if I'm not mistaken, and then aggravated battery, which That's I right. think related to the injury to Chad Olson's wife's hand. So he's right. accused of this violent crime, which carries a very, very lengthy prison sentence upon conviction. And for a 71 year old man, almost any significant prison sentence is a life sentence. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And then he claimed he his actions were justifiable uh, in self-defense. And basically the rule there is if there is sufficient evidence offered either through the state's case in chief by cross-examination or other evidence from witnesses or ultimately in the defense case, evidence of self-defense, and it doesn't have to be much, just a little tiny bit of evidence, then the burden shifts to the prosecution of having to prove the crime itself, which isn't typically very hard to do because self-defense is in a sense conceding that you did what you're accused of, but saying that you were legally justified to do it. 
the focus then shifts to whether or not the prosecutor can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you did not act in self-defense. So that's the context of a self-defense case that's in trial. And it's sort of, yeah, and like you say, it's it's different than a lot of criminal cases because in this case, Curtis is saying, yes, I shot Chad Olson, but I did it because I was terrified and in fear that he was going to harm me significantly or kill me. And the real question is, is that a credible claim? Yeah, he had to reasonably believe in the, the context of what happened that he faced an imminent uh, threat of great bodily harm or death that also had to ultimately pass the juror's test of reasonableness. Did it appear objectively reasonable to them that indeed under these circumstances did Curtis Reese face that reasonable threat of uh, great bodily harm or death? Sure. And in that vein, the prosecution seemed to embrace the public narrative about this case in their presentation, which was that there was an argument over a cell phone and Curtis Reeves, uh, indignant by the insult from Chad Olson and indignant by having popcorn thrown in his face, decided out of spite to pull his pistol and murder him in the movie theater is essentially what the state was asking the jury to believe. Is that your impression? Steve, I'd love to hear from you. Like looking through this, is that what you got was the state's argument here? Uh, you know, very much so that it was a, a premeditated act upon uh, Reeves part and that uh, he basically, he was, you know, uh, agitated by Olson's behavior. And he was just kind of looking for an opportunity and then when it presented itself that he went ahead and shot him and that the shooting was not justified. And Stephen, you use premeditated in that sense, sort of in the layman's term, Don, we know that uh, in a lot of states and Florida is one of them, that, that one of the distinctions between first degree and second degree murder is that premeditated thing, but that second degree murder is often a crime of, of passion or uh, an emotional response from from a, an action. So in this case, with a second degree charge, what the state's saying is that uh, you know Reeves didn't go there to to murder this man, but in the passion of the argument that they had, that he felt angry enough to to kill the guy. Yeah, when you take a look at Florida law on second degree murder, you you in the jury instructions you read and hear things like um spite evil intent you know it, it's it's a level of response typically to something or a complete disregard for the safety of others it's often an intentional act and clearly pulling the trigger of a gun and not claiming you pulled it by accident is an intentional act without much regard for what the consequences will be certainly right. Everyone knows if you point a gun at somebody and pull the trigger, there is a very high probability they will be seriously injured uh, or killed. And Steve, to, to your point too, when he said premeditated, often we've seen prosecutors try to make that case that that just a uh, 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 high trigger pressure, <laughs> if it's higher than normal, means that you had to take that opportunity to reflect 
on what you're doing and make the decision affirmatively to do it or or that if you had to chamber around which is uh one of the reasons we don't recommend people carry unloaded weapons then that was an opportunity to decide that you're going to kill them before you killed them so it's a real it's a real thin line right yeah i probably need to go ahead and walk that term premeditated back uh basically no, no. as i said it but it was kind of like okay uh i he he was he was agitated uh this guy uh he thought was being disrespectful and then all of a sudden oh this guy's attacking me well i'm okay i can shoot this guy and yeah, I think yeah, we no. kind of talked about maybe, you know, maybe the uh, similar and maybe with the Draca case and everything. And I think in part that was something that the uh, the media for certain was uh, trying to paint that particular picture. Yeah. And I, I wasn't, you know, calling you out on that to, to show you as incorrect, because I think I think what you said was it, it was right on in the fact that what the state was trying to do is show that intent that he wanted to kill him. And, and, I, and that's important because, uh, you know, Curtis. Reeves' defense, their story to counter the state's narrative is that it had nothing to do with popcorn. In fact, Reeves will testify later that he didn't even know the popcorn was thrown until afterwards. And Steve, you mentioned, because we see some uh, grainy, not perfect video of this, uh, it, it's hard to imagine Reeves responding to the popcorn. It's, it, it seems more like he was probably drawing that pistol already in response to Chad Olson lording over the seat and reaching out to him than anything in response to the popcorn. Uh, I believe that to be exactly true. I believe that looked to me like Reeves as quick as he was with that pistol already had his hand on the grip. I think he was prepared for something violent to occur. And there was such a short time between the movement in which Olson flung the popcorn, or at least his arm was being outstretched quickly and Reeves response to that, that I don't think the, the matter of the popcorn was involved, uh, played any factor at all. I think he was responding basically to an aggressive forward movement. And, uh, as he said, uh, he, he believed that contact had been made with him. I think later he said he thought perhaps he'd been struck by a cell phone. So anyway, I believe that he felt like, okay, this man is large. He's huge. He's looming over me. He's coming with a forward motion. He's got his arm forward and everything. I believe at that point uh, he thought that his life was in danger and he basically used a pistol to, from his perspective, to defend himself. Sure. So those are the two stories that are being told. And uh, Steve, a little, a few minutes ago, you mentioned the the Michael Drake case. And we talk about that case a lot in this podcast. It seems that the the more distance we have from it, the more and more relevant its lessons are. And, and that's the parking lot shooter case also in Florida in the same part of the state, in fact. And uh, Michael Draca was arguing with Marquise McLaughlin's girlfriend. Marquise McLaughlin came out, pushed him pretty violently to the ground. Draca pulls his pistol. There's a little pause. McLaughlin responds to it subtly. And then Draca shoots him one time in the chest just like this case, it proved fatal. And, you know, Don, what, what's interesting is in the Drake case, he was convicted. He was charged with manslaughter. And this is one of the reasons I made a point of discerning between the different charges. Here we have Reeves charged with second degree murder. And my experience, and I think yours matches, we see a lot of cases overcharged. A lot of self-defense cases, cases are overcharged as 
first or second degree murder when I think the state would have a much better case if they argued manslaughter. Do you think this case was overcharged? I think that's a fair assessment of it because we talked about a little bit already. They, the state kind of went all in on their theory that the flung or flicked popcorn was the driving force that resulted in Reeves pulling his gun and shooting, which is pretty outrageous on its face. If true, it certainly would would characterize what we know as malice or in the definition of second degree murder, the ill will, the spite, the evil intent, all of that stuff. But it's almost as if the state had either failed to appreciate some of the other evidence in the case or didn't feel that it would get any traction and they really wanted to paint uh, Curtis Reeves as a guy who overreacted to a guy who was not actually a real threat. He was unarmed. It was in a movie theater that he didn't pose that sort of imminent threat of great bodily harm or death that he would have to have uh, presented to justify the use of deadly force in response. And I think they may have miscalculated. I don't know. I wasn't there and I didn't see all of the trial. But I know that seemed to be their theory from the beginning, all the way back to some of the earlier proceedings in the case, and certainly through trial, placing such great weight on the idea that Reeves grossly overreacted to the situation. And as Steve pointed out, basically shot the guy, not because he was fearful of being injured himself, but because he wanted to. He felt he'd been disrespected, and that was that was going to be the way he took care of the problem, how he won the argument. And that may have, in many ways, simply ignored uh, the way that Reeves presented to the jury. This was a guy with all of those years of law enforcement. He'd been in probably hundreds of encounters with people that had the potential to violence, uh, an ability maybe to, to predict better than most people the way these things escalate to anticipate the real danger from the loudmouths and the guys that just blow off steam. And I have to think that at the end of the day, the jury gave him some credit for that and, and placed some value on his prior experience and training and, and understanding that Steve, correct me, but that's basically what a SWAT team does, right? It responds to a difficult, potentially violent situation with the ability to use extreme force when necessary. Uh, that's very much true. Uh, one difference between a SWAT team or a special response team or any type of entry team is that in many instances, that team is the, is the hunter, if you will. They are knowingly going to a situation in which they know the possibility of violence is, is, is very possible. I mean, well, it didn't sound right. But regardless, they knew that there was a high likelihood that violence could ensue. Now, by the same token, a officer that is in a responsive mode, he basically or she basically knows that, okay, this is a situation that may go violent, but it probably won't the majority of the time that it doesn't, but sometimes it does. Well, for Reeves to be in a position to where he was on a team and then a captain of a team suggests that he had a lot of experience in both worlds. So he was probably a very good experienced patrol officer that then became a member of the team 
and then rose through the ranks of the team and became a supervisor. So he had seen a lot of this. One of the things that I thought was very interesting was that uh, he said that he had a lot of experience, I believe, dealing with loudmouths. And in most instances, you know, they had a happy resolution and that this particular incident caught him off guard. And so, you know, I think that, you know, I believe he said later he second guessed what he could have done in order to avoid this. Uh, I think that probably that indeed caught him off guard and that he was like, okay, this guy is after me. Uh, I need to respond. I'm prepared to respond. And he defaulted to his training. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to argue when you have someone that is that large that is apparently, you know, cursing at you, uh, throwing the F word around, and apparently has hurled an object in your direction. So. Well, and Steve, he's in a very vulnerable position. And, and let's talk about disparity of force real quick or disparity of ability, right? This is something that uh, I hear a lot about in layman conversations about self-defense and, and self-defense law after the fact. And often it just doesn't really necessarily uh, apply. You know, when you have two able-bodied people of about the same age, about the same weight, about the same ability, then you know, the idea that uh, the mention of violence is, is going to elevate to the level of imminent great bodily, serious bodily injury or death. It, it's hard to believe, right? Uh, but then when you have, and so a lot of the states, I'm sorry, a lot of the defense's argument here is that uh, Reeves is 71 years old and he's a little frail and he's arthritic and he's in relatively poor health and like you mentioned uh olsen is uh, a relatively fit 43 year old man who's who's over six feet tall and over 200 pounds and being very physically aggressive he's in a uh dominant position reeves is sort of trapped in his chair uh he'd have had trouble even getting up and getting away from that situation is that tactically play in from what how he perceive his vulnerability steve uh i believe so and you know a lot was made about the you know the arthritic condition and everything well if you live a, you know on into a, your sixth and seventh and eighth decades uh you're definitely going to have arthritis uh or very few people you know uh do not have it but more in play is the fact that uh he's not athletic anymore He's a heavy set man. He's seated. He's not in a position that he can physically uh, respond. And someone that is over you has the ability to hit you with a lot of force, much more so than someone that is just standing on, you know, kind of on a horizontal plane. When someone is over you and they're able to drop their weight, you know, change their level and come down, uh, you can generate a lot more power. And uh, that's one of the things why people, you know, try to not go to the ground with someone on top of them. They refer to that as ground and pound. Typically, the person that's getting grounded and pounded is the one that's going to come out on the short end of that stick. And I could very well see why Reeves or anybody else would be in that position. And actually, that's somewhat true for someone that's younger and more athletic. 
if you've got someone that is larger and bigger than you and they're standing over you and you're seated, uh, if you stand up, you're going to, you're basically to stand up, you're going to step right into them and you're very vulnerable going forward. So yes, he was, he was in a very vulnerable position in my opinion. And Don, when you're explaining sort of the terms of, of reasonableness in the assessment of, of Reeves justification, you were looking at essentially the, the jury's going to be asked if they believe he was uh, just enraged and disrespected and shot out of spite, he's guilty here. But if they believe that even if he wasn't facing an imminent threat, if he believed that he was credibly facing that imminent threat of serious bodily harm or death, then he's not guilty of this. And, and from that perspective, how do you see that disparity of force playing out legally? Well, talking specifically about disparity of force, there is a Florida jury instruction that would have drawn the jury's attention specifically to the relative size, age, strength, vulnerabilities, abilities, capacities, and ask the jury to assess that when determining whether the threat was real. Real, I think in this sense, to your point, is subjectively real, meaning did Reeves really think he was in danger? Did he reasonably believe based upon his perception of what was happening, his perception not just of Olson's physical abilities and size, but the way he moved, the way he positioned himself, the fact that he had become physically aggressive, had had some kind of contact with him, had seemed to take every opportunity in this entire sequence to escalate the contact. Uh, Olson had several opportunities along the way just to say, yeah, sorry, man, um, I'll do it now, or, or what have you, anything that would have stopped this progression, including when Reeves left and then came back after having talked to the manager and apparently said to Olson, you know, if I'd known you were going to put it away, I wouldn't have gone to see the manager. Well, instead of it being done, that's when Olson really got agitated, became much more aggressive and physical and from Reeves' perspective, I, I would submit he thought he was more physically likely uh, to be struck, that he that Olson was more aggressive, that he was in a superior position that Steve talked about. And then all of a sudden, from Reeves' perspective, he was saying, wait, I'm sitting in this seat. There's this big guy in front of me that's more and more agitated. I think Reeves probably, from his perspective, thought, if this guy lands one solid blow to my head, I'm done. I'm unconscious or I'm otherwise completely incapable of defending myself. And he already had had some kind of contact and it looked like he was preparing himself for more. So from the subjective standpoint, it seems pretty clear. Uh, and now this is where it kind of merges that Reeves with his background and training and prior experiences with, with guys like this would have been in a unique position for himself to evaluate what his real danger was. And then of course, the objective assessment is whether looking at the totality of the circumstances from a third party standpoint, 
would the third party perspective also suggest that Reeves perception of the danger was reasonable? Not that it had to have been 100% correct, but was it reasonable under all of the circumstances? And objectively, uh, did he respond in a reasonable way to something that he believed was a reasonable and imminent threat of great bodily harm uh, or death? And I think so. I think that's ultimately what the bottom line was, that the jury took a look at it from Reeves' perspective with the help of the defense lawyer's presentation, including a witness that the defense offered on aging on the uh, human body. Now, this witness wasn't specifically qualified to talk about Reeves individually, but he testified at length about the vulnerabilities and the physical risks from being injured and, and struck that a typical 70 71-year-old person would have. And I think that helped flesh out this notion that Reeves' fear was objectively reasonable given the man of his age and, and uh, vulnerabilities. So uh, I think what you're saying, though, bottom line is the jury would have been asked to take a look at all of that stuff and then draw a conclusion ultimately whether it was reasonable or unreasonable that Reeves thought he was at risk of great bodily harm or death, and that his response to that was reasonable or unreasonable. And by their verdict, of course, they concluded that it was reasonable, both subjectively and uh, objectively, or at least what their verdict says is that the prosecution didn't convince the jury that it was unreasonable. So unless the jury is convinced by the prosecutor and its evidence that didn't meet Reeves the standard response. of the burden of proof. Yeah, couldn't have been reasonable. If it was possibly reasonable in the larger context, then the proper verdict would be not guilty. And I, I that's why I think the the state may have may have um, by going all in with the popcorn flick and the ill will response have missed the opportunity to really focus on that aspect of the case, because yeah, I think that. Well, just to dot the I, I think some of Reeves' background and experience and training, while it put him in a better position to understand certain kinds of conflict and their escalation, I think it also put him in a better position to deal with it differently. Uh, no doubt, having talked with hundreds of knuckleheads over his career, he was able to defuse and avoid conflict lots and lots and lots of time. Yeah. I think that Olson's explosive behavior helped Reeves make his reasonableness argument because I think, although it was not illegal behavior, unless he did in fact threaten or strike Reeves, the the violent, animated, physical, swear word laden response that he had to a reasonably polite request was unreasonable I, I think if you're if you're the jury and you're looking at it not from a legal standard but just from a socially acceptable standard i think you look at chad olson's behavior as unreasonable would you agree with that yeah i, I would uh, he was clearly over the top he had lots of opportunities just to let it go and all watch the movie together yeah <laughs> 
he, he i don't know is he a bully is he was he having a particularly bad day is he a hothead that looks for opportunities to push people around i don't know any of that stuff and reeves wouldn't either reeves was dealing with what he was facing at that particular moment and responding as olson in from our perspective and i think consistent with the evidence continued to uh, escalate continued to be more aggressive and reeves attempts at de-escalation if didn't if not failing maybe even encouraged the guy to take it to the next step and you talk about subjective and objective points of view on this i think uh chad olson's wife makes a case for reeves impression because she'd put his hand on her husband's chest uh no one knew chad olson better than chad olson's wife right and she'd put her, her hand on his chest the uh, the inference was to restrain him to maybe pull him back my guess is she's seen him go off the handle like this before and she was trying to calm things down i, I think i think her actions uh, helped the jury see that olson was behaving beyond what was acceptable for that circumstance yeah it probably doesn't matter whether she'd seen it before and knew what was coming or whether her perception of what was happening at that moment made her think she ought to intervene in some ways it's like the old days the seat belt in our car was our mom's arm sticking out you know to keep I us from going that. through yeah. the windshield <laughs> so maybe that's what she was doing she saw the windshield coming up on him and uh, decided to put her arm out instead but in any event i think you're right i think her assessment of what was happening at that moment suggested she ought to intervene to to stop him and steven your uh examination of the coverage that we've read about this case yeah, I got the impression that the witnesses that the state presented, most of them really corroborated that throughout all of this, Reeves was at worst slightly annoyed, but his behavior was generally pretty mild-mannered, uh, even when he went to complain to the, the manager about this. Uh, I, I, I think so. I believe there were some inconsistencies where some witnesses said at one point, exactly what you said, and then came back later and uh, walked back their statement. I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I, th I think their testimony might have been, uh, what's the term, Don, impeached? Uh, impeached. I believe, was, mm -hmm. I believe that there was, for the most part, though, they pretty much supported that. Uh, the manager, uh, I believe, said that he was, uh, you know, respectful. I believe the first person that he dealt with, I believe it was a female, uh, also said the same thing. And so, there was no just and even just kind of the way he moved and everything uh just on what little video i saw you know just did not seem to me that he was you know terribly agitated he thought the situation had been resolved and, and one of the things that i was going to just kind of throw in in terms of his uh ability to de-escalate situations and handle loud mouths like that i believe that was his word exact words is that when you're law enforcement, your ability to de-escalate uh, is often more effective than when you are just a citizen. So you do get some respect for the badge uh, and the uniform as an officer that you don't always get uh, as a civilian. And I think one of the things that Chad Olson said or was reported to have said to Reeves is, who do you think you are? And so I think he was taking issue with the fact that, you know, 
a person, you know, would be so rude as to, you know, intrude on his business and, uh, you know, complain to the management on behalf of an action that he had taken. All right, everybody, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Next time we'll have part two of our conversation. We're going to pick up on this idea of what the witnesses had to say and how that factored into the defense. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. I've got blisters on my fingers.